Again, we're going to be teaching on 1 Corinthians 13, the whole chapter, but I'm going to pick up where we just left off a minute ago. And if you remember, that first paragraph was essentially Paul saying, you can have all the gifts, all the spiritual gifts in the world. If you don't have love, it means nothing. Then he goes on to define love in kind of a comprehensive way. And he says, love is this, but love is not that kind of thing. And that brings us to verse 8, where he goes on to say, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, and he's talking about spiritual maturity here. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am now fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. We'll break the teaching tonight into just two points. If you come here regularly, you know I usually have three points, but today we're only doing two points because the two points are so intense and so weighty. And I really, uh, Paul is challenging the way you think about love here tonight. He's challenging the way you think about Christianity. And so the first point we're going to look at is just simply a misunderstanding of Christianity. A lot of people uh, who are highly religious, maybe even self-identify as Christian, miss the mark when it comes to finding what the essence of Christianity actually is. And then the second kind of revolutionary thought is this idea that a lot of people tend to think of love primarily as a concept, when in actuality the Bible teaches love primarily as a person. Very, very kind of revolutionary to your faith life if you understand these two different points, okay? So a misunderstanding of Christianity and the man who is love. First of all, a misunderstanding of Christianity. And I'm just going to Throw it out there. Put that guy's image on the screen. Raise your hand if you know who that guy is. Okay, I don't want to take for granted that I'm aging and I now know people from the early 90s that a lot of our younger members don't necessarily recognize. Uh, That guy's name is David Koresh. Uh, He's been on the brain a little bit recently because I uh, watched this docudrama on Netflix called Waco. It's about the Branch Davidians and David Koresh and... Uh, essentially what happened at the Waco compound back in the, you know, almost 30 years ago now. And in short, who David Koresh was is there really hasn't been anybody quite like him in recent memory. He was a guy who didn't consider himself to be Jesus, but he considered himself anointed and messianic in a certain way. And I mean, to put it real narrowly, he perceived himself to be the fulfillment of the Lamb of Revelation 5. The lamb in Revelation 5 is the lamb that opens the seals, the seven seals, and opens the scrolls that usher in the end judgment of all time. In other words, he knew that Jesus was the savior of mankind, but scholars, orthodox scholars for years, have identified the lamb of Revelation 5 as Jesus Christ, and and Koresh said, no, that's, I'm him, okay? And, you know, it's it's so easy to dismiss cult leaders as kind of wacko, but Koresh was... He's incredibly intelligent and charming and charismatic. And you you can't dismiss him as insane. Insane people don't get dozens of individuals to die for them. 
Insane people, uh, including Harvard graduates, by the way, uh, insane people don't get people 30 years later, people who uh, said they were you know, former followers who are still alive today, and there's many of whom will say, yeah, in the end, when the end finally comes, David Koresh will be proven right. It would be totally dismissive to suggest that Koresh was just insane. No, I think what he was doing is he was tapping into something that is very, very powerful in the human spirit. And the reason I bring him up here today is because I think the same misguided impulse that David Koresh had is something that I, I think actually lines up with a number of religious people today, including many who self-identify as Christian. And basically, I, I struggle to explain it, but it's some kind of combination of Christian doctrine and flesh. Christian doctrine and worldly instinct. Truth without love. And every time I hear a Christian who is like particularly angry and particularly self-righteous and particularly like hyper-political at times, I sometimes wonder if that's the same, you know, that same kind of spirit that clearly got to him can get to us too. And uh, a number of years ago, I read a book by uh, an author named Gerald McDermott called Seeing God, Jonathan Edwards and Spiritual Discernment. And McDermott has a section in that book that he titles, Why Koresh, Why David Koresh Knew So Much and Yet Knew So Little. And he writes, perhaps Koresh's most terrifying accusations were the insinuations that even his most loyal followers were on the verge of hell, implying that unless they had done miracles, they did not have the Holy Spirit. And then he quotes Koresh. And I can almost hear Koresh in kind of his kind of ranting tone, say this to his followers. This is a direct quote when he was on one of his particular tirades. And he says, are you really a Christian? Do you have what he calls the fruits of the spirit? The apostles of old used to heal the sick and raise the dead. They were spirit-filled men. What about you? Do you do those things today? How can these stupid churches talk about gifts of the spirit when they don't even do what the apostles did 2,000 years ago. How dare you or anyone claim to be led by the Spirit? He goes on and says, So they sin against the Holy Spirit. They commit the unpardonable sin because they claim to be led by the Spirit when in actuality they are led by the devil. You see what Christ is saying there? You follow that? He said, You think that you're a Christian and yet you don't perform miraculous deeds? and you don't prophesy, and you don't heal the sick, and you don't speak in tongues, that's what the true apostles of Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago. And if you don't do those today, you're not a true Christian. Now, what's so interesting about that is, so far as I can tell, David Koresh read the Bible a lot. The problem is he misunderstood the Bible significantly. He certainly misunderstood Revelation 5, but I would also say he very clearly misunderstands 1 Corinthians 13. Because in the opening paragraph of what Paul is teaching here tonight, he says the exact opposite thing that David Koresh is saying here. Paul, in that opening paragraph, he said, you know what? You can have all the spiritual gifts in the world. You can prophesy. You can heal the sick. You can speak in tongues. You can even give tremendous amounts of charity to the poor. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. See, David Koresh is saying the exact opposite. <laughs> he said, you can have all the love in the world. But if you don't speak in tongues, if you don't do miraculous deeds, if you don't have these kinds of gifts of prophecy, then you're nothing. See, it's the exact opposite thing. I'm going to go with Paul on this one. 
Um, do you see at the deeper level what he's suggesting here? Uh, put differently, what Paul is saying is you can have all those things and not be a Christian. One of the most dangerous spiritual mistakes is to falsely equivocate spiritual gifting with spiritual vitality. What does that mean? It means you can know your Bible, you can do charity, you can be relatively moral uh, compared to those around you. You can say your prayers, you can volunteer regularly. Those things are all great, by the way. I'm not suggesting that they're not great. What I'm indicating is those are spiritual gifts. They're not, by and large, spiritual fruit. It is entirely possible to have gifts apart from the dwelling of the Spirit. It is impossible to have fruit apart from the dwelling of the Spirit. That is, that is a huge concept. I'm going to say it one more time real quick. The Spirit gives gifts kind of non-discriminately. So it's, it's possible to have gifts from the Spirit, even though the Spirit isn't dwelling in you. It's impossible, however, to have the fruit of the Spirit without the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you. And I can even prove that pretty quickly here, that you can have gifts of the Spirit without having the presence of the Spirit. Uh, biblical examples. In the Old Testament, there's a prophet by the name of Balaam. And Balaam had this gift of prophecy. In fact, he's hired by a nation that is an enemy of God's people, the Israelites, and he's hired to proclaim truths, uh, like impactful truths, prophecy, over the nation of Israel. Now, God intervenes and he doesn't let him do it. And in, in fact, if you read through Numbers 22, 23, 24, and Joshua 24, uh, we're actually told that God intervenes and he forces Balaam to bless and not curse God's people, the Israelites. But you know what it doesn't say? Everybody agrees Balaam has a gift of prophecy, a powerful gift. Was he a believer? No. In fact, maybe the most famous example of this is Judas Iscariot. You know, in Matthew chapter 10, it says that Jesus commissions the 12 disciples to go out into the world. And he says, in my name, you are going to be given the authority to drive out demons and heal the sick. And you know what that means? I mean, we tend to, 2,000 years later, we sort of villainize Judas Iscariot into this, like, whatever. <laughs> what, did he drive out in Jesus' name? Yes. Did he heal the sick in the name of Jesus? Yes. Did Judas Iscariot ministry, minister powerfully in the name of Christ? Yes. Did he end up being a true believer? No. And you know what the point is? It's tempting, but you cannot look at spiritual gifts and external markers as the litmus test for true Christianity. You cannot look simply at knowledge and moral deeds and spiritual accomplishments, and even proportionately writer doctrine. You cannot, because the Apostle Paul says, how do you know you don't just have those things, but you're a resounding gong? How do you know you don't have those things, but you're just a clanging cymbal? In other words, how do you know you're not just some big spiritual noisemaker? See, evidence of faith is not in the gifting of the Spirit, it's in the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, an example of this that I bring out at least once a year, so it feels like the right time to do it. But uh, we always talk about Matthew 24 and 25. It's this fascinating section. Again, during Holy Week, Jesus' disciples ask him about the end times. And he says, okay, in this two-chapter teaching, he says, okay, there's going to be these signs, and there's going to be wars and famines and false messiahs and false prophets, and the, the love of many for Christ will grow cold 
and Christ will return like a thief in the, in the middle of the night. And he says, and when Jesus comes back to judge the world, you know what the litmus test for true faith and true Christianity is going to be? Here's what he says. This is in uh, Matthew 25. Then the king will come back to judge the world and tell you to take your inheritance. For when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And when I was a stranger, you were invited me in. And when I was naked, you clothed me. And the people will say, Lord, when did we see you in those kind of circumstances and provide for you? And others, you know, to some he'll say, when you did that for the least of mine, you did it for me. And to others he'll say, when you didn't do that for the least of mine, you didn't do it for me. In other words, what is he saying? The litmus, the litmus test for true Christianity at the end of time is not simply going to be a doctrinal exam. And it's not going to be an inventory of a, a you know, blessing of a, a skill set in gifts. The test at the end of the time is going to be love. Jesus saying, did you love me the way I asked you to love me by sacrificially loving one another ahead of self? That is, okay. So there's our first point. The, the temptation of the flesh is to define Christianity in terms of externals, like gifts and knowledge rather than love. And what Paul is saying is, no, first and foremost is this concept of love. Gifts and stuff are good. Knowledge is good. But if it has not love, it's nothing. Okay? So, number one, a misunderstanding of Christianity. Number two, the man who is love. You know, I mentioned earlier that the most common time we hear 1 Corinthians 13 is usually like at weddings. And that makes sense in a variety of different ways. But think about the context. Paul has talked to people for 12 chapters, this church in Corinth, that he's suggesting is tremendously gifted, and yet their gifts have become their identity, and that has been a poison to their faith that is creating divisions within the body. And how tempting that is for God's people to know how subtle and crafty Satan actually is. So you cannot read, when you read 1 Corinthians 13, the vast majority of people at first glance will simply read it as a checklist of things that we're supposed to be doing better. You know? Like, the Apostle Paul could have said, wow, you guys don't love each other very well, as evidenced by these last 12 chapters. And therefore, he, sc he scolds them moralistically and says, you guys need to love each other better, and here's how you should love one another. That would be appropriate. That would be, it might be effective, I don't know. That's not what he does. I know that's not what he does. Instead, what he does, he, he doesn't say, you don't love very well, here is how you should love. Instead, he says things like, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is gentle. You know what he's doing? Most Bible commentators who are particularly, you know, insightful will tell you he's personifying love. He's not saying love is a concept that you need to enact better, although it is. He's saying love is primarily a person. Now, the Apostle Paul is echoing a theme that we find elsewhere throughout Scripture. The Bible teaches us that God doesn't simply teach us to love or tell us to love or show us unfathomable love, although he does do those things. The Bible takes it one step further, and in 1 John chapter 4, it says, God is love. In other words, the Apostle Paul understands the supernatural biblical principle that you have to meet love before you can do love. 
Catch that? You have to meet love as a person before you can do love. Uh, You have to experientially know love before you can show love. Now, I could, there's all sorts of interesting psychological principles that are, that, that ways that this is proven, I'm not going to get into today. But it's there. You have to experience love before you have the capacity as a human to love somebody else. Before love can become a behavior in your life, love has to become your savior. And so Paul personifies love because the Bible teaches that love, in its essence, is primarily and ultimately a person. That's the only way, by the way, to make sense of the last statement that he gives in this section, which, by the way, people have kind of philosophically debated for a long time. What exactly does this mean? But he says, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. We could debate all the implications of that, but at the end of the day, the easiest way to figure out what he's saying here is, does, does the Bible ever call God faith? No. Does the Bible ever call God hope? No. Does the Bible call God love? Yes. And that should indicate to us what love in our lives actually looks like. Again, uh, the Apostle Paul, what he says in 1 Corinthians 13 and what John says in his first epistle fit together just perfectly. And John, we, we already said, he made the statement, God is love. He also suggests in 1, or 1 John 3, says, this is what it looks like. So I've told you not first that it's a concept. I've told you who loves it, love is. But I'm going to say when you meet him, here's what it looks like. 1 John 3, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And then he adds, and we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You know what's super interesting about that? Most people, most of us, when we first read that, we think it means, okay, Jesus laid down his life for us. That means he died for us. While it's true that he died for us, that's not fundamentally what it means right here. How do I know? Because the line right after that says, we're supposed to do the exact same thing. Does it make any sense, logically, that God wants every Christian to physically die for every other Christian? Does that make sense at all? No. And therefore, he means something deeper than physically die. When he says, look, Jesus laid down his life for you. Yes, for Jesus, of course, that ended in physical death and it should end in a willfulness to physically die for one another. But on a deeper level, it means to take my hands off my life and sacrifice for the better interest of somebody else ahead of myself. So, (laughs) Paul has said and John have said, love is not primarily a concept. Love is first and foremost a person. And what love looks like is taking your hands off your life to use your life to bless somebody else ahead of self. And so what would you think of as a symbol for that? If, you were, if I were to give you 60 seconds, 100 people in here, 60 seconds, draw me an image or a symbol of what love looks like. My guess is that the vast majority, maybe 97 people would draw me, maybe not in this room, but in, certainly in the general population would draw me this image, right? What is that? Well, it's a heart, of course. Well, not really. If you opened up a human body and went into the chest cavity and found the heart, it would, you know, it looked like ventricles and atria. It wouldn't look like that. But that is what we call a heart shape. You know where that comes from? You can maybe see on the bottom of the screen there, I have a coin from the 5th century Greco-Roman world. And that is the earliest tracing of where the heart symbol, that rounded symbol, comes from. 
And that coin, historians will tell you, is it, it's a fruit on it. It is the fruit of something called the silphium plant. Silphium plant, so far as we can tell, is now extinct. It was believed by the Greco-Romans to be uh, gifted from the god Apollo. And it was prescribed by doctors as both, get this, it's kind of ironic, as both an aphrodisiac and a contraceptive slash abortifacient. Both an aphrodisiac and a contraceptive slash abortifacient. In other words, that image that you see right there is literally, it literally represents erotic, passionate love without any consequences. It literally represents love without personal sacrifices. Is it any wonder that the New Testament writers had to spend so much time clarifying for the early Christians what love actually is and telling them love is not essentially and fundamentally sexual, love is not fundamentally emotional, love is not some cheap pleasure type of feeling. Rather, love looks not like that, but like that. And Paul and John are saying, look, if you get to know the man who bore that cross to pay for all of your sins, that's when you find out what love really is. And actually, you know what? That's still relevant today because if you want to know whether or not... I, the first time I ever wrestled with this was several years ago when we were doing some... Uh, our core values here at St. Marcus, and we came up with this core value of sacrificial love. And we were trying to figure out, okay, does, is it possible to experience love apart from sacrifice? Not according to a cross, because if a cross is, you know, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to do this for one another. Look, do you want to know if somebody really loves you? Don't listen just to what they say. If nobody bears, if somebody in your life says they love you, but they don't bear any one of those in any way, shape, or form in your life, it, I don't care what they say. It's not love. And it doesn't matter what you say to somebody else. If you're not bearing something like that in your life for them in some capacity, I don't know that you can say that you love them. Because this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. What does it mean to be a Christian? Christian a Christian is not somebody who has performed some moralistic checklist of behaviors. A Christian is somebody who has met love and crumbled by the experience of the grace of Jesus Christ, the undeserved love of Jesus. And that undeserved love and Jesus himself have now become their greatest affection in life. In other words, it's functionally their God. And number three, that also means that that individual has been empowered by the spirit of that Jesus to cause you to love, serve, and sacrifice for others ahead of self. As I close up here today, I just want to give you two implications of that. The first implication for me is uh, this teaching means you don't ever have to worry about your sins anymore. Because what are sins? Sins are wrong loves. Every time we talk about idolatry, we talk about disordered or uh, distorted love, right? Sin is fundamentally disordered love. It's a deficit of love. Uh, in other words, Jesus is the love. Jesus, you know, love personified, is the one who came to fulfill the law in our place. What, what is the law? I know you know what sin is, but you know, do you know why they're sins? In other words, okay, let's just look at the Ten Commandments. You shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not lie. Okay, you know that that is sin. Why is that sin? Why are those things wrong? 
It's impossible to determine why those are wrong unless you say, because they're not love. And unless you understand, see, if Jesus, if, if sin is the deficit of love, but Jesus is the embodiment of love and he fulfills the law in our place, what he did is he came and he filled in every last deficit that we have. And therefore, we don't have to worry about our deficits. We don't have to be worried about our, our sins and our wrong loves anymore. That's the first implication. The second implication is this passage, this text is incredibly encouraging. Why? Because gifts have ceilings. Gifts have um, limits. And it's a fruitless endeavor to try to define yourself by your giftedness. Why? Not everybody in here could be a great speaker. Not everybody in here could be a great leader. Not everybody in here could be a great musician. Not everybody, uh, I'll just, as long as, again, it's on the brain. I've watched another documentary recently. It's quarantine and I'm watching a lot of documentaries. So the, the a really famous one, The Last Dance, you watch the, the Last Dance, Michael Jordan, the Bulls, 97, 98 season, the second of the three-peats. My favorite part in the whole thing is where Michael Jordan uh, is essentially, it's like one of the middle episodes and the, the documentary filmmaker asks all of Jordan's former teammates, first of all, was he a good teammate? And most of them say like, yeah, he's a pretty good teammate. He, why? Well, he works really hard. He inspires us. He brings out the best in us. He drives us to get better. Then the next question that, that the filmmaker asks them all is, is Michael Jordan a nice person? <laughs> and every one of them says, well, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily characterize him as a nice guy. And then what the filmmaker does, I'll give him guts on this. He takes his iPad and he shows it to Jordan. And here's all your former teammates and what they said when I asked them, are you a nice guy? And Jordan starts crying and he says, I'm done for today. I got to be done with this. And he gets up and he walks away. See, one of the things Jordan didn't understand is he thought that everything was simply a product of like effort. And so everybody else who wasn't as good as he was, he, was he a hard worker? Oh, of course he was a hard worker. But he assumed that everybody who wasn't quite on his level simply wasn't working as hard as he worked. And see, he, he forgot, he failed to recognize that there is something like spiritual giftedness in life. And unless you acknowledge that and verbalize that, see, gifts create hierarchies in the world. One of the reasons that our world is as hierarchical as it is is because we value gifts over love. We value certain things and certain talents and abilities above others, but love is the great equalizer of life. Why? Because every single person in this room tonight is perfectly capable of being the most loving person of the 21st century. Every person in here has equal access to the currency that actually matters in heaven, which is love. Every single person in here has the potential the spiritual potential to be the most humble, most gracious, most loving person. And in fact, of the things in life that actually change the world, when Jesus is teaching his disciples at the end during Holy Week and he says, this is how they will know that you are mine. Does he say, if, it, if you are extraordinarily gifted? No, he says, this is how the world will know that you are mine. If you love one another. Gifts don't change the world. Love does. Gifts do not define you. Love does. And your gifts will never save you. He, love personified, already has. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, because we so often live out of flesh, not faith, we have such a tendency to value gifts over love. But it was your love that saved us. So help us, first and foremost, to lovingly use our gifts to glorify you and serve one another. May we do so to the glory of your name. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.